everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Bloomberg Intelligence's uh, Disruptors podcast. I'm Jen Bartashis. I'm a senior analyst with uh, Bloomberg Intelligence covering the packaged food and the retail staples industries. I'm here today with the amazing Elizabeth Alfano, who is the CEO of VegTech Invest. She is an omnipresent force in the plant-based and alternative protein space. And we're going to have a nice conversation with her today. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to found VegTech Invest. What was it that was missing in the market? Um, and how did you come into this, uh, into, into this creating this company? Thanks for asking me. Gosh, so VegTech Invest is the advisor to the world's only plant-based innovation and climate ETF, EATV. And I'd been in the plant-based innovation alternative protein space for quite a while. I'd been doing some venture investing myself personally. I was also managing a small, and still am, a small family office. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm not going to put them in venture. That's extremely risky. It's not very liquid. If you see your money again, come on, lucky seven, most likely, statistically speaking, you will not. Um, it's probably 10, 12 years down the road, and it's, it's not liquid at all. So you can't get in and get out. So I thought, well, I'm certainly not going to do that for them, even though I know the plant-based innovation space, and I believe in its S-curve potential. We can talk about that later if you'd like. But uh, for those who are, are just interested in a shift in global food supply system and investing in the same, I want them to have something that's less risky and um, more liquid. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll put them in an ETF in the public markets that would capture this growth and also have this kind of impact. I look and I look and I couldn't find it. And I thought, well, that's crazy because... Being in the space, I know of the 40 plus companies, at least 35 plus companies from around the world that are working on shifting the global food supply system at any point in the supply chain. So why isn't there an ETF that captures them, puts them together, diversifies for the consumer and offers it to the public? Now that, well, I'm sure it will pop up. I'm sure someone else will do this. And I waited and I waited and no one else did. And I thought, okay, they're not going to do it because they're not sector experts. So they don't look at the sector and see the growth potential. In fact, I would argue that the market has not yet priced in to these 35 plus companies, their impact and their potential for mass adoption, the S-curve again. And so these high growth companies at low growth prices, and you wouldn't know that, that there's a value there unless you were a sector expert. And I thought, well, most ETFs are not run by sector experts. So it makes sense that probably no one's going to do this ETF. And that's why I started EatV. This is a long uh, response to, um, I had to start VegTech Invest so that VegTech Invest could launch and advise EatV. Excellent. And I mean, defining a new investment category is not an easy task. And, you know, what are some of the challenges that you've been facing or that you've had to face to really be able to get this off the ground? Well, we live in a regulated world and certainly a very regulated sector. So whatever kind of paperwork you assume in your head is associated with starting an ETF, please let me tell you, triple it if not quadruple it. So there's the administrative perspective, which is fine. You know, just put put on your administrative hat and you, you forge ahead. Um, I think the most difficult thing is we launched EatV December 28th of 2021. We put out the press release on January 4th, 2022. And I think it's been a tricky day in the market every day since January 4th, 2022. So 
um, more than anything, because I'm a public speaker, I'm, I'll be speaking at Yale next week. I speak with Bloomberg Intelligence. I speak at the United Nations. I'm out there quite a bit as an expert talking about the intersection of sustainability, investing, and our global food supply system. So it isn't the education trajectory of helping people understand this new asset class. It's really the market that we're in that's working not with us, I'll say. So, um, but on a positive note, because I am a positive person and you and I have talked about this before, I believe when we come out of this bad economy, and yes, I do believe that at some point we will come out of this bad economy, you're going to, we're going to come out just at the same time that public policy around the globe, we can talk about these factors if you'd like, all of the other stars are aligning for everyone to understand the global shifting food supply system. And so food is going to ramp up right when the economy ramps up. And so we're kind of holding on, although who can predict the market? So, you know, you as an investor, you podcast listener, you don't have to hold on and wait, you know, get in when you feel like it's right. But we are going to turn a corner for both of these at the same time. So I'm very excited about the future. So let's talk a little bit about just your, your evaluation process, um, because I think what's unique is that you really are looking from an, like an end-to-end basis. Um, so you're not looking only at the end market plant-based product, but all along the value chain. So how do you go about assessing companies, um, deciding, you know, what you're going to be including and, you know, and then how often are you revisiting, you know, the composition of the ETF? How long is your podcast? Oh, these are great questions. Thank you for asking that. So we do have a very strict uh, methodology that we follow. And it starts with, well, this is, God, it's so exciting, the world we live in, if you can put on your rosy glasses. Um, so chat GBT is very exciting. You know, how will AI start to influence investing? Um, I'll tell you from our perspective, we do not use chat GBT. So please do not worry. Through various tools, our Bloomberg terminal and other things, we cast a very wide net. So we're looking globally and, as you say, anywhere in the value chain. So we are um, looking up and down the supply chain. That could start with ag tech, um, sustainable fertilizers, greenhouses, vertical farms, moving on to innovation and technology companies. Those companies that are licensing their IP in uh, precision fermentation to make novel proteins. Then we move on to the ingredient players and the flavor and texture players. Obviously, it has to taste good, has to have that mouthfeel. And there are legacy food players. A lot of people think we only deal in nano caps or something. That's absolutely not right. We have a pretty even distribution of small cap, mid cap, and large cap. So nice diversification there. But there's some legacy food players working on food, like Givaudan, for example, working on food and technology to make these end products taste great. And then, of course, at the end of the line, you do have that familiar brand that you might find in the grocery store for meat alternatives, dairy alternatives. But I should tell you, we cast the net for food. 80% of our ETF is food, but also for materials because food and materials go hand in hand. So when you start to replace animals from the supply chain for sustainable reasons, and we can talk about the efficiency model and, and why we believe that the world is going to shift to using novel technologies to shore up a more sustainable and efficient food supply system. These technologies will not include animals because animals are inefficient. Once you take out animals, you know, if you're 
taking out beef or you're reducing beef, you're going to reduce leather. So what kind of innovations are happening for sustainable materials? So this helps us for sustainable supply chains, both food and materials, and also acts as sort of a hedge, if you will, for the ETF. So it's about 20% materials, 80% food. So once we've cast our very wide net and we realize that some these companies are actively innovating to replace. So that makes us impact investing as well as ESG, if you will. So we screen out for any players that are supporting an uh, outdated food supply system. Feel that I need to qualify that. Hey, I grew up eating meat. It tastes delicious. The world eats meat. It was a fantastic food supply system when we had 50% less people on the planet. This isn't a diss of the food supply system that we have now. It's just to say that as we go from 8 billion people to 10 billion people, according to the United Nations, but you're not getting more land and you're not getting more water, we need to be more efficient with our natural resources. That includes deforestation and um, how we produce food. So animals are inefficient and it just doesn't work for us if you're going to feed people. And if you don't feed people food and water, you have political instability. So you're going to see governments around the world investing to shore up novel technologies and food. This is why we believe that the S-curve is coming. Okay, back to what I was saying, um, which is along the supply chain. And your selection process, and, and, and how often are you going back and revisiting the companies that are part of your fund? Yes. So we screen out for anyone who is um, maybe more focused on the older food supply system. And we screen in for those that are innovating. This is where you get that big growth potential. Screening in anyone that is innovating to replace for a more efficient food supply system. So once we do that and we have a smaller universe, we then, of course, screen for the financials. Are they profitable? Are, what is their revenue stream? What technologies are they using that we, we look and we see, okay, well, they will be profitable uh, second half of 2023, first half of 2024. So we're looking at their fundamentals therein. Obviously, you must have that. I mean, we pride ourselves on upside and impact. So we, of course, screen for financials as well. Then we have um, a final screen for anything like liquidity or any reason that they wouldn't function well within the ETF. So we go back monthly, we are an actively managed ETF. And we feel that because the food industry is so dynamic and changing all the time, and when the economy comes back, probably we'll see a series of IPOs, et cetera. We want to be nimble to be able to incorporate this exciting growth that we foresee. So we're actively managed and we go back once a month unless there's something really exceptional like an IPO that would force us to go back more than once a month. All right. And now you've mentioned it a couple of times, so let's let's uh, let's jump right into this. In terms of an S curve, in terms of adoption, you know, we've seen very we've seen ebbs and flows when it comes to consumer interest in plant based products specifically. And with the pandemic, we saw a huge surge in interest, then we saw sort of an ebb. And right now, you know, we we have a couple of the the more well known companies out there seeing sales, you know, under a little bit of sales pressure and, and that the interest seems to have declined a little bit. Um, but we've talked before about the S-curve. So tell us a little bit about what you're looking at and what you, you know, you believe is going to happen over the next couple of years. Uh-huh. Yes, there's so much to unpack there. I'll first start with one must divorce the media and the facts. I'm so sorry, people. We live in a, a, an age where 
Sometimes they coincide and sometimes they don't. So I will share what I see from my desk of research. And that is, while grocery store consumption might be down, remember we were in the pandemic, you probably had a university student living on your couch because your kids had come home from college, everything was shut down, you weren't eating at restaurants. Of course, you're buying more groceries. This would make sense. And you're home cooking. So you're buying groceries from the fresh department. So it would make sense that as we all go back to university and jobs and we start eating at restaurants and the corporate cafeteria, you're buying much less of the fresh food at home. And as plant-based hasn't yet scaled in terms of price and they're still a little bit more expensive, you would expect that particularly during recessionary inflationary times, you're not going to buy the most expensive fresh thing. You're going to get the less expensive frozen thing, or you're just going to eat plant-based options out in food service. So we saw some uptick of that downturn in fresh. We saw some uptick to incorporate that in frozen, but then we're also seeing food service really jump. So um, I have a podcast called the Plant-Based Business Hour, and on that, the director of national natural foods, Rod Willis, was saying that he saw 40% increase in food service plant-based products sold through Dot Foods 2022 over 2021, because prior to COVID, restaurants could kind of flip a coin if you wanted to have a plant-based option or not. Now coming out of COVID, it is ubiquitous. They all must have at least one option, if not two. And then corporate cafeterias are looking to reduce their carbon footprint. We'll talk about that in a second. So you're seeing um, university cafeterias really catering to Gen Z and millennials. Well, millennials have graduated, but Gen Z who really um, likes those products and understands planetary health as well as personal health. And but I think it's I think it's important for people to remember that food service is broader than just restaurants because you've mentioned the school cafeterias and the corporate cafeterias. It's also healthcare, so the healthcare system, hospitals, nursing homes long-term care facilities. So food service is a, is a much broader application than a lot of people might actually think of when they first, when they first hear it. Thank you for that. A hundred percent. Couldn't, you couldn't be more right. So you think how large that sector is. And so I'm looking at the holistic picture of consumption patterns. That's one. So you've got more food service, less in uh, the grocery store, but then there's also what's going on in the world. So I don't want to be disparaging, but Realistically, if this was just driven by Gen Z and millennials, the industry would squash them. They would put out a bunch of campaigns to say it's not cool, don't do it, and that would go away. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing three stakeholders all wanting the same thing at the same time. So we have the consumer. The older consumer wants healthier options. We can talk about that, flavor profile, cleaner ingredients, the innovation curve of how plant-based is getting healthier and healthier because they're just launching their innovation curve. Um, and younger people want planetary health. But then there's also government policy. So you see the war in Ukraine, what that did to our supply chain. You saw what COVID did to our food supply chain. You see the heat between China and the U.S. I just came from the Milken Institute Global Conference, and this was something they were talking a lot about, the IP in climate tech and also how that dripples trickles down to the IP in food tech because food and climate so intimately related and you want to own this IP and not have your trade adversary own it. So this government impact 
or government concern about how they're going to feed people and who's really going to own that IP and, and what that means for national security and stability. So you see governments like the Biden administration putting out their uh, bold goals for biotech and biotech manufacturing. And so this that would be talking about cultivated meat and plant-based proteins and fermented proteins. But you see China doing this, investing in this, Israel investing, Singapore investing, Germany investing, uh, Holland investing. So, And you see in Europe, you know, we focus so much in the U.S. on the U.S., but you see in Europe, plant-based is growing leaps and bounds, particularly in countries like Holland and Germany. And then- but it's funny, it's funny because, you know, um, investors are quick to criticize companies like Beyond Meat or Oatly if they announce a, a trial of a product like with a McDonald's or with a, you know, a big QSR chain. And when it doesn't go nationwide in the U.S., it's considered a failure. But I don't know that there's enough credit given to the fact that in Europe, you know, we now have like a, a, a complete plant-based only Burger King location like in Germany, right? Um, and and that it's a very different market and it is also a very large market. And that plant-based or, you know, um, alternative proteins are a global it's a global thing. And so when when one market is maybe not as as hot as another, there are there are other markets that kind of counterbalance each other and that the trend is is definitely growing in, on that global scale. I love that you say that. And since we're on the topic, Asia, big growth in Asia, starting from a smaller base, so but percentage-wise, big growth. And that's really where all of the, um, not all of the growth, but that's where a lot of the growth is predicted to be in Asia already. There's some cultural willingness to go that way historically. And um, just the population growth there and then the population growth in Africa. So this world dynamics play a big role here, as you state. And then our last stakeholder, who oddly also wants the same thing at the same time, and that is legacy food players. So as you see, the SEC, Security and Exchange Commission, but also other governing bodies put pressure on companies about disclosing their scopes one, two, and three. That's a fancy way of saying disclosing your emissions anywhere along your supply chain so that bad actors no longer can hide and there's transparency there because we can't fix something we can't see. So if you're looking at fixing emissions, you have to know where they are. So this is real scrutiny on the business equation of of meat and dairy. So they too are wanting to find better emission options and a better business bottom line. We haven't really talked about it yet, but animals being such inefficient players in the space, it is about 25 to 35 calories of feed to get one calorie of beef. It's 15 to 16 for one calorie of pig. It's nine for one calorie of chicken. That means you're cutting down trees, trees that would have otherwise sequestered carbon, but you're cutting down trees and you're growing crops, things that have protein and fiber. Now, are you giving that food to people? No, you're giving it to animals who need more land, water, time, cut down more trees. They need more calories. That's an awful business equation. Well, and I think what's interesting is, and when you when you think about the big players that have been around a long time, you know, Tyson calls itself a protein company. You know, it's not an animal protein company. It's a protein company. Uh, and we've seen some of these other large kind of, uh, you know, players that have been been in this business a long time pivoting and investing in whether it's through their venture arms or in other ways of, of really getting into the space. And so we're seeing new product lines come to bear in their prepared foods that are, you know, have plant-based options. Um, and so it's it's exciting to see that the, the big legacy players are still continuing to, to participate in the growth of the market as well. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, and they benefit from that growth. So now you have legacy players, government and consumers all wanting the same thing for different reasons, but they all want it at the same time. This is why we anticipate that S-curve. All right. And so when we're thinking about that S-curve, you know, what is your timeline? Like when I know, you know part of it will, you know, depends a little bit on the current economic environment, at least in the United States and, and a little bit elsewhere in the world. But are you, are you excited about the next two years, about the next four years, about the next 10 years? Um, like when do you think that we're going to hit that rapid acceleration? Uh-huh. I love that you say that. Um, there's two things. There's the rapid acceleration and when you can make money on the rapid acceleration. You know, come on, lucky seven. I, the, the economy does have to play ball, if you will. So I, I don't know that you'll have an S-curve with the economy still struggling as it is. But I would say, and so this podcast is just at the tail end, mid-Q to 2023. I'm going to say that we're really looking at sort of mid-2025 to early 2026 for the ramp up. The average consumer walking about their life, maybe they'll be more cognizant of it by 2027. And then by 2032, you're looking at about 10% adoption rate, and that's considered a tipping point. And from there, you have that domino effect where things just go, and it, and it grows really quickly. Now, there's a lot of money to be made in the early, before it gets to that tipping point in the earlier time frame. Um, but I'll also caution everybody. Obviously, this is not investing advice, everyone. You, you, you know, make your own decisions here. But I'll also say for that S-curve to start ramping up, which I think is about two years from now, give or take, maybe 18 months, maybe two and a half years, you know, somewhere in there, you do need to see infrastructure build out. This is why when people say, oh, gosh, you know, your ETF, that's an interesting way to look at it. You're looking at the entire supply chain. We actually think the real growth is happening in the supply chain because that's where the infrastructure build out is happening to be able to scale to feed 10 billion people. That is an enormous scale. Again, I hope it's not a conflict to mention, again, the Milken Institute Global Conference yesterday, Michael Milken himself talking about, you know, hey, three to five trillion is going to trickle through all of our investment portfolios for these novel climate technologies. Food tech is really a climate tech. It's a way of protecting your portfolio for climate change because it addresses it head on. 32% of the world's global methane emissions come from animal agriculture. So when you revise these things, you get these great climate protection value propositions. So, you know, as we um, kind of bolster up our investment portfolios, be mindful that we need investment into the infrastructure for this to scale at a rapid pace. All right. And I, you know, I think that when, when people and a lot of people, when they think about plant-based, they think about niche players. They think about vegans. They think about flexitarians. Um, and they're not sure that there's necessarily a play there, right? And so I think one of the uh, one of the interesting things about what's happening right now is that you're, you're seeing companies bringing new mar- you know, new products to market. And I'm going to talk about on the cultivated meat side. You know, it's a entirely new technology. But I think what's important is that you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to be a vegetarian. You don't have to even have any intent in changing the way you eat or or think about how you consume foods to appreciate the fact that the whole food supply chain is changing and has to continue to change. And that 
when when you're at a point where there's a a required change that's imminent, there's lots of opportunity. And so finding that those pockets of opportunity is, I think, one of the one of the things that's most fascinating about you know the food industry right now. So you know you had talked when you talked about the composition of of the ETF of like twenty percent in materials and and eighty percent elsewhere, but does that twenty percent materials include sort of like the the hardware, like so like like the bioreactors and like the science behind what's going to unlock this new capacity and this new way of producing food? Mm-hmm. It probably will in time, so we've got to wait for those companies to go public. But all of that supply chain, all of those bioreactors, and I love that you say this. You bring up bioreactors. So for some people, they're they're thinking like, oh gosh, do I want tech in my food? And I'll just sort of say. I'm so sorry, people, that ship has sailed already. The reason you have monocropped soy, do we give that to people? No, soy goes to animals, mostly, 70 to 80%. Um, But the reason you're having those monocrops is because there's seeds that are built or constructed to be prolific. So there's already a lot of tech in our food system, and um, you just want it to be the right tech. So it can be nefarious. But it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be. And everyone's working to have a non-nefarious food supply system. Um, So we're looking at these ameliorations. But so you think, well, who else has bioreactors? Like pharma, big pharma has bioreactors. And why don't we just take what they've got and use it for food? They can charge a lot more than commodities can. So we're that's the economies of scale that we're trying to get to to bring down the price of some of these things. But when we do that, you are 100% right. You will not be changing your consumption at all. You're going to have that burger. It's just how we make it's going to be much more efficient, but it's going to taste just as great. It's going to be just as juicy and it's going to be the real deal. It's the cultivated meat, as Jen was mentioning, is made from the cells of the animal. You just don't have to cut down the trees, graze the animal, give them land, water, time. You don't need the hooves. You don't need the ears. You don't need the blood. You don't need the eyes. Just focus on what you want. Now think about this. If if you care about this, folks, Think about it from a food justice point of view. How many people can have filet mignon today? Very few. Gosh, it's going to be filet mignon for everybody. This is great news. So, you know, I, I guess, you know, as we as we kind of wrap things up here, I, I, I just want to come back and, and touch, you know, on, you know, in your opinion, you know, what is the single biggest thing that needs to happen to kind of catapult investment in this space and, and in the in the evolving food industry? Gosh, it's the economy. It just people are, they're paralyzed. They're just not doing anything. They're just kind of hunkering down until things blow over. And then they're going to free up to see all the opportunity. And this is where one makes money as they capture that early opportunity uh, in whatever field they're looking at. So they're going to see all this opportunity because when food shifts, unlike other industries, let's say electric vehicles and um, alternative energy, food's going to shift really quickly. And the reason for this is, which is kind of nice from a impact investing stance, the Boston Consulting Group did a study. And if you invest in alternative proteins and plant-based innovation, you're three times to 40 times more impactful at reducing greenhouse gases than other green emissions like alternative energy. Happy to send that article for the show notes. But when you invest in alternative proteins, it's not as expensive as 
um, alternative energy or electric vehicles. So that change can happen really quickly. It is expensive. You know, it, we do need investment and we do need it from all sources, not just venture capital, for example. You're going to need governments to get involved. But it can ramp up really quickly. It doesn't need as much infrastructure, and that infrastructure isn't as expensive. So the change will happen really quickly because obviously 2030, 2050, these goals for reducing climate change are quickly upon us. So we're going to need to do it quickly, and I believe people will. All right. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful having a conversation with you, and uh, look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Jen.